Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I am looking at a new, soon-to-be best-selling book, Rough Draft, by MSNBC anchor Katie Turr, who joins me on the podcast today. Don't count your chickens before they hatch, my friend. <laughs> Just so. Katie, it's been, you know, I was flashing back to when you and I first met, probably in 2016, but also the conversation we had in, in 2017 after Trump was elected. And I remember at the time you were working on your book, Unbelievable, I think it was about to come out. And you were wrestling through the question of like, okay, maybe it won't be as bad as we thought. <laughs> Do you remember that moment? And, and it turned out to be just way worse than either of us thought. You know, I think there was a moment in after the election, and, and we all saw the what happened during 2016. We saw what was coming. I think we all knew what was coming, but you want to be hopeful that something will change. What's done is done. Let's be hopeful that it 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 will get better, that he will grow into the role. He will be wowed by the awe of the Oval Office, and he'll change into somebody who is maybe not Abe Lincoln, but someone more presidential than the way he behaved on the campaign trail. I mean, I think you just have to hope. I remember Dave Chappelle doing SNL right after the election. And that's basically the message he sent out. Like, we're all on your side. We all want this to work. It's in everybody's interest for this to work. But, you know, you thought 2016 was a wild ride. The, the Trump presidency was was just loop-de-loop after loop-de-loop. Well, and, and, and we live it again and again. And we're going to get to your book, which is a very personal memoir. As I was reading it, I was thinking that I understand the impulse behind it at this point to try to make sense of a, of a crazy life in our crazy times. Would, they, would you think that's a good summary of the book? Just like, I think, how do you put your head around everything that's going on? And, and you've had quite a wild ride. Yeah, I mean, I think that like everybody during the pandemic, it was such a dark time in those early days when we didn't know, you know, how deadly the virus was, how you got it, what it would do to you. And then it seemed like the administration didn't know what it was doing at all, didn't know how to, uh, you know, confront it in a uniform way. And then you thought, well, like, if I'm about to die or if everything's about to go to hell, like, have I, have I lived the life that I want to live? And that's what I was thinking. Like, is this the life? Not that I thought I was going to die, but, you know, I, who knows what was going to happen? Was I going to lose my job? Did I even want my job? And I, and I wondered, was I happy in my job? And then I wondered, was I making anything better in my job? Or was I making things worse as a cable news anchor? Let's come back to all of those questions a little bit later. Near the end of the book, though, you describe what it was like. And I, I, you and I are having this conversation on the afternoon of Monday, June 13th, where we just had the second hearing of the January 6th committee. You wrote about what the surreal experience of anchoring during the, the actual insurrection. So what is it like having, you know, gone through that day, see what it had come to, and then watching this thing play out a year and a half later, I just, you know, what's going on in Katie Turr's mind? Having lived through this for six years and watching all this come out. You know? While I was watching it, I felt that, wow, obviously it was going to end this way. Obviously it was going to end this way because one plus one equals two. Donald Trump said there was fraud. He ginned up his supporters to believe that they were being cheated. One plus one equals two. They obviously were going to go to the to Washington to try to keep him in power because he was telling them democracy was ending. 
And they believed him. They believe everything he says. And they had believed them since the beginning. And we had seen all of the the consequences of that, be it vaccines or, you know, mask mandates or, you know, all any other example you want to pull from the Trump presidency where he defied a norm or trampled a norm or just lied about what was happening in the world. So watching it, the insurrection unfold in real time and watching the protesters go from the speech where he said, you got to be strong, you got to be strong, we're only going to keep our country if you're strong, and let's march to the Capitol. And I remember hearing him say that and looking on my other monitor and seeing people moving. And I thought, well, he's he's telling them to go. Like, this is one mm-hmm. plus one equals two. He's telling them to go. They're going to go, obviously. And did I think that they would, you know, break the windows and, and beat up the cops and go hunting for Nancy Pelosi and scream, hang Mike Pence? No, I don't think I could have predicted each one of those things individually. But it should not be surprising that it happened given all that we had experienced. And and I'll just leave you with this. I, in the summer of 2020, went to a, a Trump rally in Pennsylvania. And I stayed outside of the rally where a bunch of um, folks had gathered because it was a small space and there was a lot of overflow. It wasn't a lot, but there was, there was, a, there was a few mm-hmm. hundred people gathered. And I asked a lot of people, what would you do if Donald Trump lost? And uniformly, the answer I got was, there's no way for him to lose. There's, it's not possible. Yeah. And I said, well, but no, it is possible. There's, it is not possible. The only way he would lose was if it was rigged. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you're, you're confident that if he loses, democracy was stolen. I'm confident. So what do you do with that? And I got a lot of hems and haws. But from one guy, I got a, well, I'll do it. I'll do what it takes. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? I'll do what it takes. He said, well, I'll, I'll do what it takes to keep him in office. And I said, does that mean that you'd take up arms? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and this guy said it to me on camera. And, and I remember bringing the tape back to, to the studio and to NBC and saying, look, this is, a, this is a big deal. I mean, he said it on camera. And there, there was some hesitation around it because, well, maybe it's just a crazy guy, you know? Like, do we really want to inflame things by putting it on television? Because I had an so interview with Frank. Trip, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had an interview with Frank Faguzzi yeah. who said the people are being, are being radicalized and they were worried about the term radicalized. And I mean, I get the hesitation, like not wanting to go farther than you should. But I mean, it was all right in front of us. Let me read you what you wrote, because you make a very interesting point here. Uh, the warnings were obvious, and they started months ago when President Trump said he could not lose the election unless it was rigged. Then when he lost, he said it was indeed rigged, ripped away by fraud. And from election night all the way through that afternoon up to January 6th, he kept repeating that lie of a stolen election. He kept it up through the lawsuits, which he lost and where, by the way, his lawyers did not argue fraud because you couldn't lie in court. And it goes on, you know, that it failed. But and then you conclude and this is at the the end of your chapter where you describe uh, covering January 6th. But I felt like I was somehow to blame. How did it get to this point? Why did the president's big lie survive? Wasn't it our job to correct it out of existence, to police the truth and make sure the American people know the facts? Did we not do our job? And, and that's a question I think that a lot of people uh, in the media and out of the media keep asking themselves, how did we get to this point? How did the system that was supposed to be an ultimate arbiter of truth, how is it so 
beaten and broken down. So what's the answer to your question? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a long history here. And I and there are a lot of different reasons why trust in the media um, and in, in journalists has fallen precipitously over the past few decades. And I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you that there was this one thing. And there are a lot of factors. It was, you know, the rise of Newt Gingrich <laughs> was a big factor in, in just tearing apart trust and like the campaign of going after the messenger so that you can say whatever you want or going after the, the gatekeeper so you can say whatever you want. I also think that we in the media are, are, are to blame as well. I think that, you know, with breaking news banners that, that are ubiquitous for things that aren't breaking news any longer, um, we, we have a tendency, we can have a tendency to over-sensationalize or to jump to conclusions too soon. I think that there could be a case study in the way we covered the Mueller report. I mean, and whether it was actually a bad thing that we covered it so much. Would it have been better if we didn't talk about it until the until the report itself came out? And then it was all laid out in front of the American public instead of this, instead of leak after, not even leak, but there were occasionally leaks, nothing coming from Mueller directly, or covering the indictments to pieces and then having people on that would say that, you know, this is definitely conspiracy and he's definitely going to be indicted by by DOJ. I mean, I, I, I think that we we should do some soul searching on how we cover the news. And I, I think part of what makes this so interesting, Charlie, and which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, was is because my parents had something to do with this. My parents <laughs> were, were, you know, popularized sensational news gathering. And, and I'm not saying that they did terrible journalism. They did some incredible journalism that changed the course of this country, you know, captured images that that you well know and that you needed to see, like the, the beating of the of, uh, Reginald Denny during the L.A. riots and all the L.A. riots video. They also caught incredible images of the cops beating up immigrants. You know, I mean, they've done some things that facilitated real world consequences for the wrongdoers. You've told the story before of, of your mother and father, this, this really incredible team of, you know, a, the pioneering helicopter journalist parents. Yeah. And it is a, it's a wild story. And I love the way you tell the story about, you know, during the pandemic, you get a box from your mom shows up at your doorstep. And this is into the pandemic. And, you know, just as you'd learn you were pregnant and thousands of hours of videotape that they had shot. I mean, basically their whole life. I mean, this was so you, you got to. You got to go through that time travel wormhole back into that period of when television news became, you know, reality TV. Sensation. Yeah, reality TV. Yeah, I mean, they 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 covered every police pursuit you saw in, in L.A. in the 80s and 90s. They were the ones that that made the police pursuit a thing. <laughs> break into the news coverage for this police pursuit. And we'll watch it for an hour straight or break into whatever programming. We'll watch it for an hour straight because the ratings went through the roof watching somebody run for the cops without any real context around it. And you could draw a straight line from that to the way we cover Trump, frankly. So why do people watch cable TV now? Do they watch it because they want the news or because they want their prior views validated? I think it's a mix of both. And I think it depends on where you're watching, who you're watching. But I I, I believe, and I we've seen this in, in data that we've accumulated, there is a large swath of the population that just wants to hear what's going on, and they want it told to them straight. They they don't they they don't really want to have too much opinion. They don't want to have too much partisanship, but they also want to get beyond the headlines and not just get like here's what happened today when I'll rip through them, but have some insight and analysis into what went on. 
Um, and then there are people who want to be told that they're right. <laughs> I mean, there definitely are because the ratings, uh, you know, in primetime hours are good. And that's when you're, you're, you know, you're going into your silo. Um, and I'm not equating everyone. I, I think Fox News is on another planet and they're doing a disservice and they're actually damaging the country. But I think there's a broad audience. There's a lot of people who want a lot of different things. So let's talk a little bit about where we're at today and through the lens of your more than six years of watching Trump. So, I mean, when did you actually start covering Trump? Is it, are we, I think it was like June 22nd now, right? or June 23rd. 2015. Okay, so we're at, we're at now seven years now. Seven that you years. You have been watching and and trying to figure out what goes on inside a Donald Trump's lizard mind and why it works. So one of the things we learned today was that Donald Trump was told over and over and over again that he had lost, that there was no evidence uh, that that he had done, it, and yet he didn't really care about it. And even you know somebody as close to him or allegedly as close to him as his own attorney general, Bill Barr, who was willing to do all sorts of things uh, to cover up for the president and twist the truth for the president, told the president that, no, that there's no way. And here's a little bit of uh, the, the testimony they played this morning of the former attorney general sort of mocking Dinesh D'Souza's uh, revisionist history, 2000 mules. Let's play a little bit of this. I sat there flipping through the report and looking through it. And um, to be frank, it looked very amateurish to me. Didn't have the credentials of the people involved, but I didn't see any real qualifications. And the statements were made very uh, uh, conclusory, like, you know, this, these machines were designed to you know, engage in fraud or something to that effect, but I didn't see any supporting information for it. And I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with, uh, with, uh, he's become detached from reality if he really believes this stuff. On the other hand, you know, when I went into this and would, you know, tell him how crazy some of these allegations were, there was never, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. My opinion then and my opinion now is that uh, the election was not stolen by fraud. And uh, I haven't seen anything since the election that changes my mind on that, including the 2000 Mules movie. <laughs> that, that's his laughter, by the way. So here you have the attorney general saying the president of the United States was detached from reality and he was not interested in what's true or not. Now, I, are, you, are you like nodding along with that? Because this is the Donald Trump that you have known and covered now for, for seven years. It is the person that I covered. And, and <laughs> anybody who would be surprised by that reaction is purposefully deluding themselves. I mean, it is exactly the way he has always been. If something doesn't align with his reality, he looks for a reason why that is not real or that is wrong or false. And then he looks for something that does align with his reality. And we saw that with polling. You know, very early on in the campaign, when the polls showed him losing, he declared the polls were wrong. You know, and, and this whole idea that the election was rigged if he didn't win, that, that didn't just pop up in November 2020. It didn't pop up in the summer of 2020. He was saying this in 2016, early 2016, about primaries and then about the RNC and then about the election in 2016. He said it on the day of the election in 2016 started talking about how uh, one county 
was was being was irregular and it was rigged and then he backed away from it because he won Th- this is <laughs> this is this is who he has always been okay so this is the puzzle, i mean like th- right? think about this think about this there was yeah, this yeah. is a, a little remembered moment from 2016 remember when he used to go out and say that there were muslims cheering on the streets in oh, yeah. jersey city when the towers came down oh yes so he would he would say they said it over and over and over again and I said, please show me some proof of this. We're going to send it to you. Hope he's sending it to you is his hope, hope Hicks. Uh, I haven't gotten it yet. Where is it? We're going to get it to you. It happened. It happened. Mr. Trump, it never happened. And I had a, a long phone call with him about this at one point. And he said, I know what happened because I have the world's best memory, <laughs> which, by the way, was used against him later in a deposition. And then he claimed that he didn't remember saying it. But he concluded that the reason it didn't exist was not because it didn't exist, was but because somebody destroyed a tape. I mean, it, he would push it out there that it had to exist because he remembers seeing it like that. So the title of your first book on this was Unbelievable. So I know you've thought about this a lot. I thought about titling and, the second and, book and, Believable. <laughs> okay, so the big puzzle with, with Donald Trump is... it. Is he lying or does he actually believe this stuff or or is it some is it some third option? Does he actually believe that he won the election or does he just figure, hey, listen, uh, I have to say this in order to stay relevant because I am not a loser. I cannot lose and I can raise hundreds of millions of dollars by telling people. So, you know, and I'm not sure which is worse, whether he is he actually believes this and is pushing the the insurrection. Uh, or whether he is lying and lying to himself. What do you think? I mean, how do you sort out that Rubik's Cube question of of his mind? Or I'm, by the way, I'm, I apologize in advance for the Rubik's Cube because this is not that this is not that complex, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it is the lizard brain of Donald Trump. What do you think? So I've asked the people close to him this multiple times. Does he actually believe this stuff? And they mm-hmm. all insist he actually does. But I have a hard time swallowing that. I, listen, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I, I don't know. Yeah. I can't tell you definitively what's going on there. I would say during the campaign, what it seemed to me was that he believed what he believed in the moment that he believed it. And if he changed his mind, he'd believe that. It was jumping around all over the place. But what I would say is, does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, does yeah. what he believed actually matter in this in this case? Because what happened, happened. I mean, I was talking to Ari Melber about this on the air today, and he used a very simple analogy. If you're at an airport and you take someone's luggage by accident from the carousel and you leave, the intent there is clear. Like you were there to get your luggage and you were mistaken. And I said, well, what happens if someone says that's not your luggage and you say, no, it is my luggage. And they say, no, but it's not the same size as your luggage. And you say, yes, it is. And they say, well, no, your name isn't on it. You say, I believe this is still my (laughs) luggage. I believe it's my luggage. And you walk out. How does that case unfold? Well, it's also the the choice of language by Bill Barr when he talks about the president of the United States being detached from reality. With and then you have a leadership question. Is this, I mean, maybe it's not a criminal case. Maybe you can't prove criminal intent. But do you want somebody who's detached from reality or who's listening, to, taking, not listening to any of the more informed advisors that he has assembled around him and instead is listening to the guy who everybody says was drunk on election night? Okay, so here's the here's the thing. So you, you have these tweets that are coming out now, or the, the testimony from the insiders, uh, including. Let me make sure I find this one. Mick Mulvaney, former chief of staff, who tweeted out today, Trump's inner circle at the end was Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, Peter Navarro, garbage in, garbage out. 
So we are having this theme of the crazies versus the normal. And by the way, you know, a lot of testimony about how a lot of this originated from a clearly intoxicated uh, Rudy Giuliani that, you know, here at the moment when we are debating whether or not AI is going to go sentient, it turns out that the Republic almost was brought down by drunken Rudy Giuliani, but whatever. But so you, so you have the normals, Bill Steppe and the campaign manager says we were the normals, they were the crazies. But the normals, their response was to step back, step away and not push back in real time. Isn't that also just sort of a familiar pattern of Trump world? 100 percent. And take Bill Barr. Under oath, he's talking about how the president's detached from reality, gets a book out and talks about how he told the president um, that it was false, that he lost the election. I mean, he talked to an interviewer at the time saying that. But in his resignation letter, he's praising him. So he's detached from reality. He's doing damage to the country, he says. But then he praises him in a resignation letter. I don't know. It's very strange. Well, and even now saying that if he was the nominee, he would support him him again. president of the United States again. You know, I don't know. When I ask Republicans about this, they say that they like his policies more than they like Democrats' policies. But, you know, there are other Republicans who have Republican policies. Well, that's it. I mean, they could have the policies without all of the other baggage, which they all know. Maybe they don't think the others can win. That's the thing. This is their winner. This is their guy. I guess until DeSantis proves that, that he can compete. But it is interesting, you know, Bill Stepien, you know, describing himself as, you know, part of what was, it, you know, the, the 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 normal party or however he described himself there. Team normal um, as opposed to team coup or, or team crazy, you know, and, and yet, you know, again, you know, a lot of this is, is, is so familiar, but he said nothing. He did nothing. Maybe he was hoping that somebody else was going to step up or that he could keep his reputation intact by whispering to reporters. Uh, behind the scenes, which is, of course, another mark of, of Trump world, where they'll say one thing to you in private and one thing in public. But it's also interesting to me that Stepien right now is consulting for Harriet uh, Hageman, yeah. who uh, the, the former never Trumper who is now running to uh, oust Liz Cheney uh, for the crime of speaking truth, uh, a truth that obviously Stepien also knew that this was this was all wrong. So you have the careerists, the the cynicism of it, that they're all still willing to go along. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. I I wonder, I am very curious about how they explain that that conflict away. It would be a fascinating case study in a psychology class. And they have obviously very compelling arguments to tell one another. So I go back to the point that you had made earlier about January 6th, because again, you've written about uh, truth, truthfulness, what's believable and not believable. We're living in an era in which tens of millions of Americans believe things that are demonstrably not true. And it feels sometimes, do you feel this way, that there's nothing you can do to break through? And, And you have a big platform. You work for NBC News. You work for one of the major networks. I mean, do you have that sense of futility that we live in an era that where there you know you can you can lay it out two plus two equals four, and forty percent of the country is just not going to listen to you. Yeah, I do have that worry, and and I think what fuels it is that there's not three big networks any longer, and everyone doesn't go to the same place to get their information in the evening or in the morning. They don't all read the same papers because of the rise of alternative outlets 
cable outlets and social media, really social media and, and the internet, you can go and find anything that you want to hear and you can stay there and not be confronted with a, with a um, competing opinion. And I think that is, or a competing set of facts. Um, and I think that's really scary. And I don't know how we wrestle that away from people. Um, and I think you can see it infecting our society broadly, but certainly at, at the political level. But then I think about um, the number of people who are actually using social media or, or going online to find their own truth. I, they wouldn't get the majority in a, in a voting block in this country. What is a better thing to do is to convince Americans who don't pay attention and who don't vote that it's worth paying attention and it's worth voting. And while that is very difficult, and if, some, if it was easy, somebody would have figured it out by now, I think that that is achievable, whereas convincing somebody who's in a silo is probably not. Let me take a quick break, and then I want to come back to some of this question about the media and, and your discussion in your book. And the book is Rough Draft by Katie Tour. And your coverage of the campaign, which is described in your first book, was one of the reasons why you were the recipient of the 2017 Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Journalism. And I want to ask you about that after this. So obviously, there's a reason why I am a huge fan of Omaha Steaks. Now, here's a little gift-giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks. And with Father's Day just around the corner, there is not a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, type bulwark in the search bar, and order the Dads Want Steaks package. For just $99, this limited-time package includes 16, that's 16, mouth-watering entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tarts. I'm just hungry just thinking about them. And as a special gift to my listeners, when you type bulwark, in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you will also get eight, eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks. And now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. Don't wait. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience he'll love and that he can share with you. So go to omahasteaks.com and type bulwark into the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and four desserts plus eight free Omaha Steak burgers. Omaha Steaks is not just steak. It is the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword bulwark. All right, we are back with Katie Tour, MSNBC anchor and correspondent for NBC News. Before we get back to uh, Walter Cronkite here, the, the, the other thing that came out today uh, during the hearing that I thought was just fascinating was just the level of grift in all of this, which again is not, <laughs> is not off brand for Donald Trump, but the fact that, uh, the, the fact that they raised or his super PACs raised $250 million off of the false claims of election fraud. But the vast majority of that money went to a super PAC, not to the election defense fund as promised to donors whatsoever. So the big lie has been incredibly lucrative. Uh, and that's also a through line for Donald Trump, that Donald Trump manages to say things 
that does shake loose a tremendous amount of cash from either his enthusiastic or gullible supporters. Yeah, it was a real eye-opening moment in the hearing today. And I think that listing out where the money went, if you're paying attention, I, I wonder what your reaction would be if you've been giving $5 every month on repeat to the, I mean, I, I'm sure you have this in your email too, Charlie. I, um, I've i signed up for all of the, the Trump stuff or I've been signed up or they just have our distribution list because I get every single email and it floods my my inbox. I mean, I my inbox is covered with Trump super PAC or campaign emails, raffles offering this or offering that, promising me a lunch, saying that Donald Trump thinks I'm special and wonders why I haven't signed up. Katie, why haven't you signed up? Donald Trump loves you, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, listen, it's all part of politics now where everybody's desperately trying to raise money every day, but they take it to a a different level. I mean, they, they go above and beyond what you normally see. And what they outlined in the hearing was eye-opening. Look what, look, look where all the money went. It did not go to these, did not go to the fraud cases. And listen, this was all reported in real time. We've known this. Right. But to put it in a hearing and to break down the numbers and, you know, to have all the networks covering at the same time, even Fox News, you know, you have to wonder if you have been given a money, what, what do you think of that? I find those questions, you know, fascinating because you would always think that there'd be a breaking point. People would realize, well, he's scamming me. He's ripping me off. I am the victim here. And yet that never seems to happen. So you're, you're just your early reviews of the, the hearings, the, the, the primetime hearing uh, and the one that was uh, th- this morning that, as you point out, the primetime hearing was not broadcast by Fox News, but the Monday hearing was, which was interesting. So how are they doing? Do you think does it? Does, I, I'm sorry you keep asking the the pundit 101 question, but <laughs> how are they do, doing? does it matter? What do you think it's yeah. going to do? Um, I think yeah. that they've been very compelling, uh, and I think what's been most compelling about it is seeing Donald Trump's own aides and advisors and family members, or you know, Attorney General, say the truth, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. be honest about what happened because you don't ever get that. You get spin, and they have to be honest because they are under oath. And so you're pulling back the curtain, you're seeing what's really going on, what these people really believe because they can't lie. And you're able to put faces and names to a lot of that unnamed source reporting that we'd read for so long. I think it's really interesting. Will it change people's minds? I don't know, but I also don't think, I I, I think it doesn't matter. You gotta get it down for history. People might care about inflation, but it doesn't mean they don't care about this too. And I think it's important to to have it out there in the open to make sure that that information is accessible so we're not turning and looking away. Sometimes it doesn't matter if it, if it matters to somebody. It matters more broadly to our democracy. I agree with you completely there. And I really did think that the uh, the strength, particularly of the first, well, also of, of, of today's, was the fact that they are relying so heavily on people who were in the Trump inner circle. This is not coming uh, from MSNBC hosts. This is not coming from never, never Trumpers. It's not coming from Democrats. This is coming from people who are in the room, people who are talking people to the president. People who are trying to get who him are, reelected. We're working exactly. for him. Yeah, the key people. I mean, these are the people that Donald Trump trusted with his reelection, with his administration. I think it's fascinating watching Ivanka Trump there. Fascinating oh, yes. Watching Jared, Jared totally. Kushner. I mean, and those were the moments where, wow, they are going there. I mean, there's you know, like levels of aggressiveness and they figured, let's, let's do the 10th. 
we're going to put the, the president's family. We're going to put all of this so that the call is coming from within the House. So I, I do think that it is interesting. I do have the question about why some of them agreed to cooperate with the committee while obviously uh, Trump put pressure on others not to, to defy uh, the, the, the subpoenas. So uh, do, you, do you sense any pattern there? I mean, you have, you know, Steve Bannon who's out there railing, you know, and, you know, almost seems to be courting martyr martyrhood by by uh, by defying it and and then then you see you know key players like you know Bill Stepien and uh, Bill Barr and others you know who are testifying directly to the committee I think they want the cover of the subpoena and they know that in the long run they probably should cooperate I think there are lawyers who don't yeah. want to get disbarred <laughs> so they're gonna go yeah, in no. and, and and cooperate I think Jared Navanka um, from what we know about them and, and all the reporting that surrounds them, they are, have their eyes always on the next thing. So this must be in their interest. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about resources and, and motive, Steve Bannon is out there to be vilified because it helps his image and his brand. And, yeah. you know, it just depends on, it depends on who you're talking about. I think most people who are looking for a career that's longer than the next couple of years... Are, are cooperating. Are they, so they're using the cover to, of a subpoena, yeah. though, which helps them. It helps a lot. So let's go back to your discussion of the media. And, and you know, you talked about uh, your mom and your dad and the, the, the part they played in in the transformation of TV news, TV journalism. And, and you tweeted out, they don't deny it. And you also tweeted that, you know, while you tried to escape the that sensational news environment, you were confronted by an extreme version of it 30 years later when you covered Trump. Still, I noted from the Guardian review that you 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 push back against critics who want to compare broadcast journalism today to the golden age of Walter Cronkite as a winner of the Walter Cronkite Award. So let's talk about this. I mean, you know, people look back and think there was a time when the media did got this right, when they did it right, when truth could triumph versus now. You have a slightly different view. No, no, no. Over. Hold on. The Guardian review got this wrong, so I'm going to quibble with okay, the Guardian. Okay, okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> I think they rushed through and didn't actually read it properly because I think Walter Cronkite is amazing, and I'm not condemning Walter Cronkite as a journalist in any way. I think he did incredible things. I think the coverage of Watergate, Watergate was country-changing mm-hmm. and important and right. I think it was correct. Um, so I'm sorry, Guardian reporter, I think you misread it, but, uh, or Guardian reviewer. But what I was saying was at the time, Walter Cronkite, because of that coverage was labeled by the right in this country as a lefty. And he was, they were trying to say, you know, it was this, it was that time's version of MSDNC. They called CBS, you know, a word that I don't want to repeat the, the, the blank broadcasting Mm -hmm. station. And I was trying to make a comparison that that what he what we're doing now is not all that different than what he was doing back then. And then I also note that there are instances in Walter Cronkite's career where he did things that would be fireable offenses today. And the reason why he enjoys such a golden reputation is people don't remember this stuff because it wasn't there was no Twitter, there was no, you know, DVR. It, these these instances, these mess ups didn't live forever and follow right. him forever the way those things follow journalists now. Whereas if a journalist now would, I don't know, bug the RNC as Walter Cronkite did, that journalist wouldn't mm-hmm. work again, ever. 
It would be done over. They would never come back because it would be you couldn't run away from it. That's my point. Well, well we're I'm all also fallible. We're all doing our best. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember what our politics was like in 1968. And things are very, very divided now, but they felt they were really coming apart back then. So the, the intensity of uh, the tribal divisions, you know, uh, with the overlay of urban violence, assassination, the war in Vietnam. So anyone who thinks that there was a kinder, gentler era really does forget what the summer of 1968 was like or the intensity of the blowback against uh, CBS News. So a couple of other things, I know we don't have time to get into your whole book, which, you know, is is, is a very, very personal memoir. And it is an extraordinary story, as you, as you tell the, the the story of the remarkable lives of your parents, including the fact that that your father and and correct me if I get the language of this this wrong, because you tell the story about how your dad essentially you know, decided that that he was going to become a woman. Yeah, that he was transgender. And 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 you describe how you reacted to that, but also you accepted it. I mean, and, and this is something that you have talked about quite a bit. And this seems like this issue now has moved from the periphery of our politics to something that's very central to our politics. Yes. And, and it's at the, at the moment, it's it's a driver of division. And I think there are bad actors out there that are using it to campaign and they're using it to to stoke anger and fear with segments of the population. And it's awful. And it's awful because we're talking about people. We're also not talking about a large portion of the public. And to demonize and vilify uh, transgender kids or transgender people or their yeah. parents, I think is wrong. And I think we'll look back on this time and, and, and those people won't look good. They don't look good now, but they really won't look good in the future. A note with my dad, I call my dad my dad because uh, I had a conversation with my dad when she told me she was transitioning. And I said, can I call you dad still? Because she had been my dad for 30 years. And she said, of course, I'm still your dad. So that's why why I say dad. So, you know, you described earlier in our in our discussion how you were writing this during the pandemic and asking yourself some fundamental questions. And, and your life has gone through this, this remarkable transformation with the coverage of the Trump campaign, his election your, uh, you know, your star turn at MSNBC, you got married, you had children, and you had to ask yourself a lot of questions about, about your life. So earlier in the podcast, you were saying that you sat down and said, is this the life you, you want to leave? Do you want to keep doing what you are doing? So what did you come up with or where are you at right now? Because I'm, 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 I'm guessing that if you're like a lot of us, these are still ongoing questions, but what what's what's your answer now? My answer now is that you know we're all still figuring it out, which is why the book is yeah. called Rough Draft because yes. we're not a final draft until we're you know six feet under. Uh, we are constantly evolving and changing and making decisions and going back on those decisions. We're rough. We are rough, and the book is an attempt for me to figure out who I am and where I'm going. And um, part of doing it was to go back into my childhood and, and confront and wrestle with the journalism that my parents created and, and how it led us to where we are now, but also wrestle with the, the childhood, the particular childhood that I had, which was adventurous and exciting. I mean, I grew up in a helicopter. I literally grew up in a helicopter. <laughs> I spent more time in a helicopter than I did in my own bed. I knew how to fly a helicopter when I was four. I would yell story, story when I heard a uh, ambulance go by, but it was also scary. Uh, and my dad was stressed out because of the, the business and the job and the news, flying a helicopter, which is a 
crazy thing, but also stressed out because she, at the time he, was not the person that she wanted to be. She was living a lie and it would come out in rage and, and that would also come out in fists and batteries thrown at my mom and, you know, anger and emotional violence toward my brother and I and at times physical violence toward us. And I had run away from that and moved to New York and really didn't go back to Los Angeles much. And the relationship with my dad was fractured and I needed to confront it because if I didn't, if I kept running from it, I was never going to figure out who I was. And I was always going to, you know, find myself at some point hiding in a, in a dark corner with the demons in my head. So it's me trying to go through it. Um, it's also fun. There's a lot of fun stuff in here. I and mean, there's heavy stuff, but there's a lot of fun right. stuff, including right. a lot of relatable stuff for women about coming up in, in the news business and having disgusting news directors. Well, and, and, and also just the, your experience, of, and, now, and now you're a mom, and I remember your very passionate uh, comments afterwards when you realized the importance of giving mothers time off after they give birth. I mean, I thought that was, that was one where I thought you really kind of had found your voice at, the, at that moment to say, listen, this is really, really hard. Why is a society do not, you know, don't we acknowledge this and make more provisions for that? This is an example of not understanding until it happens to you. And, <laughs> and it happened to me. And I thought, oh, my God, having a kid, I thought being on the campaign trail was the hardest thing I would ever do. I was up all the time. I never slept. I barely ate anything. I was on an airplane every day. And having a kid was so much harder. And especially in the immediate aftermath when they're babies, I found it overwhelming. And I got a lot of time off paid from, from this company. And I'm so thankful for it. But it made me realize that I hated that I was the exception. And it's not fair. And it's, it's not good for kids. It's not good for moms. not good for dads. Um, not good for society. And so I tried to use my platform to shine a light on it. The book is Rough Draft. Uh, those of you who've read uh, Katie Turr's previous work know that it is a great, rollicking, interesting read. Uh, Rough Draft. Uh, Katie Turr, thank you so much for joining me today. Charlie, thank you so much for having me. I missed you. I appreciate that. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.